Good to be here today. Please turn to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15, a well-known passage of scripture. Not come to say anything new. Just to give you a little bit of cultural background, Jewish cultural background to this. A tale of a father and two sons. Call it the prodigal son of the years. But by the end of this, you might maybe change your views a little bit on the title. The title I put on is A Tale of a Father and Two Sons. An amazing story. The context of this, which you should remember, we are three months before the crucifixion. <coughs> the Lord has come all the way from Galilee. He had four ministries, main ministries. The last one is finishing in Galilee. He's come all the way down, modern-day Jordan, following the, the trade route all the way down the eastern side of Jordan. He's going to eventually cross by Jericho, which many people did, and then come up all the way, 7.2 miles uphill to Jerusalem. Whenever you read anything in the Bible New Testament, it always talks about going up to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is a very high city. And on the way from Jericho, right through, snaking right through a wilderness. I mean, when I say wilderness, it is wilderness. There are mountains of wilderness, and that's where the Lord was tempted. It's partly where David also hid away from Saul. There's lots of caves there. It's not far from Qumran, where the Qumran scrolls are found. And then Geda, it's all part of this area. But it's a, it's a wilderness, but it's a beautiful wilderness. It's, it's beautiful to look at. And so where the, the Lord's told the, the story of the, of the Good Samaritan, it's all this way. Even today, it'll be dangerous. Lots of Bedouin. You see them camping all around there. Lots of Bedouin, very, very dangerous by yourself. So you always have to go in a party. That's a context. The Lord's coming back three months before he dies to be crucified. So this is the last journey. But we're also in last chance saloon, three months before he dies. He's been followed, when the Bible talks about multitude of people, um, you're, you're talking maybe up to 100,000 plus people. Incredible. We get the impression in our language it's just a, a couple of thousand. If, if you ever go to Israel and you see the places where Jesus chose, literally as far as the eye could see, there were people, cancers, just diseases, terminal illnesses, mental illnesses, spiritual illnesses, um, and whatever. Judea at that time was a very dark, spiritual place, the lowest point in its history. That's when the light came, at the lowest point. Jewish society was corrupt from the top all the way down into deep spiritualism. That's why you read an awful lot of people being demon-possessed because the occult was real in Judea at that time. Hard to believe, isn't it? Because we God's people. It was all a facade. It was all a facade, as you'll see in a few moments' time. So that's, that's the context. The context of this as well is in verse 1. Can you see verse 1 with me? This is vitally important. By this point, there's hundreds of, hundreds of maybe thousands of people, certainly tens of thousands of people following Jesus. The main type of people that followed him and believed on him were this type. He also said to the disciples, 
there was a certain rich man who had a steward and a, a steward, and an accusation was brought. Wrong, wrong, wrong verse, And all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to him to hear him. The tax collector was a, a Roman Jewish collaborator. Uh, the Jews hated them, hated them. They couldn't mix to a band from every synagogue or in a temple. They were despised. If a Jew walked past a tax collector, he spit on them. That's what they do to them. They were hated. Like the, uh, the French collaborators in the, in, the, in the last war, or the Ukrainian collaborators, they were hated by the population. They were hunted down after the war and hung or shot. Same thing here. But also sinners, some of them prostitutes, immoral people, people who just couldn't live with themselves. Frightened to live, frightened to die. The Pharisees would never mix with this type of people and they despised Jesus on even talking to him, reaching. That's, so that's a background to it. Jesus is looking at these Pharisees, they're in the front. They're all standing there, in their gowns, used to wear perfume as well in those days, believe it or not, and that was to disguise the stench of the other people, the body <coughs> odor from the other people. They didn't even want to smell them. Separate part, they always at the front. If you read the Gospels, they're always at the front. All these crowd, all these what they call nobodies, no marks. People unaccepted. People wouldn't be accepted into Jewish society, especially in the elite around Jerusalem. And yet they're all on tender hooks, listening to words they've never heard before. To a man they've never seen the lights before with the power and authority he speaks that is greater than the high priest and the Pharisees. They've never heard a man or seen a man like this. And yet, there he is, probably with olive skin. He didn't have white skin like me, probably had olive skin. Therefore, brown eyes, probably black or brown hair. He's standing there just like an ordinary working class man. And yet, just scratch the surface and God will lose out of him. They've never met him. He intimidates them, and yet he woos them at the same time. They're scared of what he says because he has authority. They're intimidated. He, he speaks as God. But at the same time, they're highly attracted to him. They're drawn to him. Just ordinary people. People around Crockett, uh, people like your husband, your wife, your, your grown children, your grandchildren. The ones, in other words, people who've made terrible mistakes in life. This passage falls into four, four categories. Well known, we're going right through the Bible from Genesis chapter 3 all the way through. Rebellion, retribution, repentance and restoration. But there's also three plans, three schemes in these well-known passages of Scripture. You may pick them up before. When I explain them, you'll go, oh, ah, yes, it's there. Shakespeare said... Charles Dickens both said, this is the most amazing short story that's ever been spoken. It is. It's the best ever. It doesn't get better than this in scripture. A wonderful, amazing story. And what it was, it was Jesus looking at these Pharisees, realizing that they are in last chance saloon. 
He never offers them the gospel ever again. My dear friends, can I tell you this? I've been a Christian 52 years now. There is a limit to the offer of the gospel to people. Sometimes the Lord offers it once and says, enough of you. Sometimes he offers it thousands of times and then saves people. That's his prerogative. But there's always a limit to the gospel. Only a fool hardens his heart. Only a fool is like Pharaoh, hardened his heart, hardened his heart, hardened his heart, and then God hardened Pharaoh's heart. So for your family, my advice would be, don't harden your heart. Don't, don't play this Russian roulette with your soul. These Pharisees would never be offered the gospel again. This is their last chance saloon. Never again would they be offered heaven. Never again would they see the mercy of God. Never again, can you imagine that? Living with that thought that never again is the offer open. They're in fact in last chance saloon. We come across plan A. Plan A, to verse 12. And then a younger of the brothers said to his father, Father, give me a portion of goods that I want, that belong to me, as such. You know, the inheritance. Now, what's your honest opinion of this request? Are you saying, well, fair enough, you know, the old guy, you know. He's got a few years left, why don't you let the young guy have a bit of a, enjoy, enjoy, enjoy his riches now? Why does he have to wait? The old guy could linger for another 10 or 20 years. Why is that? I know if I said that to my dad, he'd say, you know what? Pick any window in the house, because that's how you leave him. That's what he say to me. Let me take you to Jewish society. The Jewish society, can I take you back? Some of us can go back, maybe 50 odd years, maybe 60 years. You, you were brought up like I was brought up in Liverpool. That... Children were seen and not heard. Would you ever give cheek to your mum? If you did give cheek to your mum, what would she say? Wait till your father gets. And then you're plastered against the wall. That's what it was, wasn't it? It was as dangerous as this. Dangerous. That stare from dad. Lethal stare. He could turn water to ice, couldn't he? In Jewish society... It was even more so. It was a, had a high Jewish hierarchy that literally even grown-up children, even married children, could not, even children, uh, children with children, could not give any lip or disrespect to their, to their adults, to any adult in society, especially their parents. There were serious consequences to this. So if you, you gave lip or said to your Jewish dad, hey, listen, dad, give me the inheritance now. You were basically saying, and this was said publicly, you were basically saying to a very closed, tight-knit Jewish community that had a, a higher hierarchical stru structure where the family and the authority of dad and mom were taken as sacrosanct. You're basically saying, I want, I want you dead. Drop dead. That's what you were saying. Now, even with our generation, you would never say, no matter what dispute you had with your parents, nobody would ever say to your mum and dad, drop dead. But this lad publicly said, 
drop dead. Now, when the Pharisees heard this, listened to Jesus and the whole Jewish crowd, everybody would have gone, oh, that's terrible. That's really, really bad. And it was bad. Of course it was. They were shocked. They would have never heard in their lifetime any grown-up son give lip to his dad like this, wishing him dead. It was the worst insult that could ever happen to a father. Money on all inheritance only came after the father would die. And plan A was, Dad, drop dead or give me the cash because I'm leaving here. I want to get away from you as far as possible. Plan A was, I just want the money for me. The money you've earned. The money you've lived for. The money you've sacrificed for. I want it for me now. The whole crowd would have gone, oh, this is a bad lad. This is a bad son. This is really, really bad situation. And the whole village at that point in Jewish society would have expected the father to walk up to the son and slap him. Slap him around the face hard to the point that the son was on his knees. He would have kept slapping him until the son was forced on his knees and apologised. The worst thing that could have happened is that the elders with the father would have taken the son out of the city gates and stoned him. That was often the case with Jewish family, with a son or daughter that showed the parents disrespect. I know this. As the father standing there with all the Jewish people around him, as the son's given him public disrespect and belittling him, I know this, the father appeared to everybody being pathetic, weak, or the men would have been saying, you know what, he's not even a man, look at him, look at him. The women would have been turning away from him saying, how pathetic, how pathetic, he's not even a father. No wonder the son talks to him, he must have been a bad father. I know this in life, the greater the love you have, the greater the pain and betrayal or disappointment you experience. The greater the love. I think only a mum and dad can know this. The, I've lost count of how many mums and dads over the years have said to me, when their son and daughters let them down, hurt them or said something that they can never recall, it's crucified them. They've been gutted. Why? Because they love that child and have realised that that child doesn't really love them. That rebellion, that rejection is very difficult to cope with. Look at verse 12 again. There's an absence of anger from the father and this stunned and loving father. We read there's no cursing, there's no slapping his son around the place. There's only passive noble compliance and we read, so he divided his garments, he divided his livelihood. That's his pension, what he was going to live off. So he divided that, the son didn't care a hoot of how his dad was going to live. No social security in those days, no family credit, no pension in those days, obviously. What you had is what you had, and what you didn't have is what you didn't have. The father was let down, wondering where he's gone wrong, like every parent says, where on earth have I gone wrong? with him? Where on earth have I gone wrong with her? What did I do that she turned out like this or he turned out like this? So the, the father 
they publicly insulted, silently, tearfully, reluctantly, and selfishly signed away his own future livelihood to his younger son, who didn't even say a token thank you when he received inheritance. Two-thirds the older brother, one-third to the younger brother. What we witness here, the pain of rejected love. It reminds me of one who was also silent, like a sheep before shearers. Look at verse 13. Look at the urgency of this selfish son to rid himself of his father's love. We really went as far away as possible to get away from his father. A selfish heart can't afford to consider the feelings of others. It's too wrapped up in the God of self. And maybe he justified his actions by saying to others who were with him, maybe, maybe he was calling his father out, saying, you know what? To justify my actions, I can tell you this. I can tell you stories about the old guy. He's not the nice guy you thought he was. He did this. He did that. He said this. He didn't do this. You know what? What you see is not what you get. He's an absolute fraud. Hoping that maybe people who listen to him thinking, is that right? Because you know what? Bad news travels faster than good in this world. A gossip knows there's always people that will listen to them. And here, he was calling his innocent father out. The father must have been broken hearted as his son walked down the road. Probably never seen him again. And not just that, he, want, he didn't want to see his dad ever again. I know of one who willingly, against all rational justice, denied himself, completely denied himself, no matter what they did to him, took up his cross without one complaint. You know what? In contrast, the selfish son sold his inheritance and the precious love of his father for a cheap, temporary flight into pleasure. Popularity, unadulterated passion. And where did he go? He went to the local brothel. Look at verse 30. He slept with whores, spent his money on whores. That's what he did. Just like our younger generation today, my friends, are living like whores, aren't they? That's what it's all about, isn't it, today? That's what it's all about. I've never seen things like Love Island, but you know what? What I've heard is dishonorable. Focus on just the physical aspect of a man or woman. Not realizing, well, when you marry them, and 30, 40 years later, they'll be different because you'll be different. You marry the woman in the body, not the body. That's a difference. It's amazing, isn't it? Before we get on our high horse, though, and everybody in the crowd would have been going, this lad is really bad. He actually went through it. There's one thing talking about it. It's another thing going through it. According to this younger man, younger son, plan A was going just great. It's going fine. Never give his father a second thought. Just so selfish. Why do I want to contact him? He's my past. And if, when the Pharisees listened to this, they would have been in shock. And they would expect the father to publicly disown the son. That's what they would have done. And what a Jewish community would have had, they would have had a de facto funeral for the son. And they would have stood around a grave. They went through the whole funeral process. They would have stood around a grave. And the father, as well as the whole community after him, would have said, he is dead. She is dead. 
and the whole community would have repeated that word, he is dead. She is dead. And they would never be mentioned ever again. It's as if they were never born. That's how serious it was. That is, if they didn't execute them by stoning. We come across the second R, retribution. The late R.C. Spruill, who died a couple of years ago, an American pastor, a man I appreciate and respect, has been a great help to me over my, in my ministry over the years, last 30 years or so. He said this one time, I took note in the, in the States, he said, I've committed many sins in my long life. He said, not long before he died. He said, none of my sins have ever made me happy, you know. The best my sin has only brought me short-term pleasure, but never any joy. How true that is. Sin doesn't give you joy. It gives you pleasure. Of course it can. But it can't give you joy. Look at verse 14. Then we read of this retribution. Predict we read of this, this lad squandering all his riches on selfish living. You can see it now. Orgies going on, the rest of it, immoral parties. They're going on. And while at the same time not giving his father a single thought until we arrive at payday. Payday. God's retribution. Two drastic things happened to this young lad. First of all, the money ran out, and, there was a, and, and, then, and then there was a great famine in the land. And the consequences of this was an economic turndown, which we're having now in our country, <coughs> limited employment possibilities, and therefore potential starvation. He's now desperate. His pipe dream was now in ruins, and all those who parted with him so-called friends, they just, where they, they just crawled under the stone where they originally come from. They wouldn't help him. Of course they wouldn't. Life was never going to be the same for this young man. You know, my friends, there are certain things, times and situations in life and seasons which affect all of us in life. None of us get through this life without scars. Some of them are life-changing situations that will never, ever be the same. Losing a husband or wife, life will never be the same. The death of a child, life, I guarantee, will never be the same. Someone destroying your character, life will never be the same. Being told you've got cancer, I guarantee you, your life will never be the same. Now these things can be, make you bitter, or they make you, make you better. That's the only choice we have. With this lad, he didn't even listen to the plane of retribution. What he tried to do was come up with plan B. And plan B, plan A was get away from dad, plan B was works. So out of desperation, he had to admit he was a failure. He had to admit, own his sin. He had to realise the offence he'd caused his father. But you know what? He was still proud. And a proud man listens to nobody, nor bows down to any man. So you know what he does? Comes up with plan B. He's living in the gut of his own mess, and the only employment he can find is knocking on the door of a, a Gentile. Now the Jewish Pharisees would have gone, oh, a Gentile? Let me tell you why. If a, Jew, if a Jewish Pharisee touched you and me, they'd have to wash themselves seven times and go through a whole cleansing ceremony because they thought we were all unclean as Gentiles. 
That is, if you're a Gentile today like I am. They wouldn't even touch you. So the fact that you're going groveling to a Gentile who they regard lower than a pig was amazing. They go, and even the crowd listening to Jesus would have gone, that's that's really bad, you know. No Jew would go so low to do this. And you can imagine this Gentile, knowing that there's no unemployment, there's no employment, knowing that food was scarce, knowing that this man was desperate, you can understand thinking, there's a, there's a Jewish boy coming to me. Knowing a bit about Jewish culture, sir, can I have a job? Oh, yes, you can have a job. Feed the pigs in the back. So to any Jew today in St. David's School, King David's School, talk about feeding pigs, they'd be horrified. So to any Orthodox Jew today that you go and feed pigs, you know what? It's a fate worse than death. The whole of the crowd would have gone, oh, feeding pigs as well, as well as groveling to a Gentile. Oh, this is unacceptable. You can't get lower than this. He got so hungry as he was living with the pigs that he'd come to starvation. And he's looking at the carapods, verse 16. What's a carapod? Well, it's about five or six inches long. It's about three quarters of an inch wide. I'm speaking in old currency now. When it dries out, it goes a very dark, browny black colour. It looks like leather. There's no nutritional value to a human when you eat this, but pigs can get something from it. And it's the most unattractive food you can get. Hard, stale, tasteless, leather-like plant that just dries out. And here he is, is trying to break it. No doubt breaking his teeth, it goes rock hard. Trying to eat this, sitting amongst the pigs, smelling like the swine. Everybody would have said, I'd rather die than this. Jesus is still telling the story, and by this point, everybody's transfixed on him because they've never heard a story like this. Nobody even whispered these words. In verse 15, this young man found that success has many fathers, but failure is an absolute orphan. No one could help him, no one even wanted to help him, and he's sitting in a mess of his own making. And all this, now all his plans are turned pear-shaped, all his dreams are being dashed, and he couldn't have gone any lower in life, or so he thought. And to everybody around, and even his own heart, he looked like he was sinking fast. But you know what? It's interesting as you look in the scriptures, sometimes God takes you low to lift you higher. How many people have had everything taken from them? And we're saved. How many people have been told you've got months to live and they seek God? How many people have said your wife's left you and they turn to Christ? How many people have to lose? Sometimes an old pastor said to me many years ago when I started my ministry, Steve, you have to lose to gain. That's how God works. Sometimes you have to be refined. Humbled, taken low, before he lifts you up. He will not work with a proud heart. And sometimes with your loved ones and my loved ones, if the Lord's going to save them, you'll have to take things away from them which are painful. 
he will not share his heart with any idol. And here this man had to be humbled, taken low. He had to own his own bankrupt, helpless state. And he realised there's only one who can help him. Only one. But that is the problem, here's the thing. The one, the only one he know could possibly help him is the one he's just betrayed, made a show of, publicly disgraced, and spat in his face. It's his dad. Would he accept him after all he's done? Most parents would say, you've made your bed. You jolly well sleep in it, what you've done to me. Don't forget at this point, nobody in the village would have spoken to the father. No inn would accept the father. As he walked down the road, the men would have spat on him. He's a public disgrace in Jewish society. The women would have been saying, you're not fit, fit to be in this village. You're not fit to be near my children. You're a bad example. He would have been completely isolated. But would the father take him back? And then we come to repentance, verse 17 19. Read the most wonderful expression that only the Spirit of God can do to you and me or to your family. We read, he came to himself. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. I can convince people. Let me tell you this. I, many, year, many years ago when I was in uni, and um, this lecturer, he knew the Bible better than I will ever know the Bible. He called me in the office one day, and, um, and we used to have some good debates. And he said to me, can you just tell me this, Steve? Explain to me what it is to be born again. This guy had a PhD from Oxford University. I was an undergraduate in those days. He said to me, explain to me what it is to be born again. So I did the best I could in his office having a cup of tea. This many times. I could see the desperation and sincerity in his face. This wasn't a, I catch you out as a student. This was, please tell me the truth. And he said, you know what, I've heard that from a number of you evangelicals over the years. And he said, I know the Bible inside out. He said, I've written books on the Bible. He said, it doesn't make any sense to me at all. I just can't see it. And why? Because he couldn't see it. Because the Holy Spirit wasn't revealing it to him. He knew it, but didn't feel it. Holy Spirit makes the truth real and essential in your heart. Here this lad finally come to himself. What have I done? It's a terrible feeling. It's called conviction. It's called guilt. It's a terrible thing. We all know what that is because we've all done things wrong. It's terrible living with guilt. Let me tell you this as a pastor. It's worse dying with guilt. The times I've been there, I've lost count. And people have said, I'm scared to live. Steve, I'm scared to die. Even atheists have said to me, I'm scared to face God. Because we all know, after death, we have to face it. He came to himself. The first step to repentance involves admitting your own guilt before God. He's already acknowledged he perishes with hunger. Okay, so now he sees his true state before God. And he recalls that even the day laborers, those people who lived outside his dad's protection, just came in one day. They never wore shoes. They basically wore, wore rags. They lived on stone. Their pillar was a, was a pillar of stone. That's how they lived. What a drachma a day. Nothing a day. And they had no rights whatsoever. 
He said, even they are better than me. Look at verse 19, he comes up with plan C. We've had plan A, plan B, now plan C. Partial repentance. Father, I've sinned against heaven against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me one of your hired servants. It's only partial repentance because the motive of this confession is the loss of money. It's, a, it's the failure. You're still thinking, well, you know what? If I hadn't lost the money, if I wouldn't have slept with those whores, if, well, if I wasn't hungry, if I didn't lose face and lifestyle, I wouldn't be in such a mess. In other words, we see that the prodigal is still thinking about improving his lot rather than focusing on the offence he caused his father. Partial repentance. I'm in a mess, and we've all said it, Lord, I'm in a mess, get me out of this mess, rather than realising, Lord, I've offended you. I'm in this mess because I've offended you. Totally different. Partial repentance. And uh, we see this prodigal is more about self-improvement. You know what, there's a, there's a very thin line between repentance and remorse, I found, in churches. There's a very thin line in the pews between repentance and remorse. He was not there yet. He thought he was there, but he wasn't there yet. He, he hadn't fully realised or felt the seriousness of the offence he caused his father. However, he was now willing to return to his father, not as a son, as an independent day labourer, as you know. Uh, he couldn't negotiate a wage, he slept outside the protection of his father. He had to accept the humility and the humiliation of everybody saying to him, but weren't you his son? Weren't you the boss's son? When you, didn't you sleep in a nice, comfortable bed? Didn't you eat the best food? Didn't you have the best clothing? Didn't you have sandals on your feet? And you're now living in a grovel like us? You have to accept the consequences of what he'd done wrong. You have to swallow his self-respect and pride, but only a partial remittance of the guilt. The son felt he was going further down by going back to his dad. But in reality, he was going higher and higher every step he said he made in the father's direction. And then you can understand him real, real, rehearsing the lines as he's going back to his dad. The same road he left, the same road he's coming back. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. I'm sorry for what I've done. Maybe one of your hired servants. Will he accept me? Will he accept me? Will he chase me away? What do I do if he chases me away? And then finally, restoration. How strong is committed love? I wonder if I can ask you ladies, how long, how strong is your committed love to your child? Even though they've grown up. How strong is a committed love of a husband to a wife? I would die for my wife. I think any man who loves his wife would. Ladies, you would never allow anybody, even your own husband, to damage your children if you love him. And that's why when, when we read in the press that sometimes the social services, even around here many years ago, I can tell you, allowed a, a woman allowed a, some man to hurt her children. The press condemn him, but they condemn her even more for allowing that. And rightly so. How strong is committed love? Well, we see this perfect example of how strong committed love is. We see this hurt, let down, abused father 
we see his reaction to this unworthy son. And we now witness unconditional and eternal love of the father, who every morning must have opened the curtains, looked down the road where his son went, thinking, this is the day when he's going to come back. This is the day he's going to come back to me today. Even though he's been terrible to his dad, he's destroyed his dad's life. His dad's got no friends. But every morning he opens up thinking, this is the day. Every evening, before he closed the curtains, looked out one last look. Maybe tomorrow morning, that will be a good day to come back. It's incredible, isn't it? And then one particular day, he saw a dot in the distance. His heart was pounding. Could it be him? Could this be the one after all this time? He looked at the rags as this man got close to dirt, the muck on his face, tatty unkept hair, lost his sandals, walking like a pauper, weak, pathetic, filthy and vile that no man would touch. And he knows it's his son. What does he do? We read this word here. This is the, a beautiful word of reconciliation. Look at this word. You see, we read, he ran to him. This is a vital word that the whole of the Jewish society that listened to Jesus would have gone, oh, you ran to him as well? He ran to him. Why is this insignificant? A middle-aged man would seem to be undignified if he ran everywhere. They could walk quick, but they couldn't lift their garments up and show their bottom legs and knees and run. This was totally unacceptable in any Jewish society. No man would do this. It was regarded just a bit lower than being immoral, completely undignified beneath being a real dad and a mature man. Young lads ran round, mature men have that dignity, don't do it. So the whole village would have seen him running to the village. What did he see? He saw the rags of his own, this man's own making, smelling homeless, starving, and with amazing compassion, once again, he sacrificed all for the son who didn't deserve it. The crowd listened to Jesus and the Pharisees would have gone, what an idiot, what an idiot, what an absolute idiot. Why? Because they knew nothing of mercy, they knew nothing of grace. He ran to him. As he ran through the village, he ran for two reasons. One thing, if the men saw that his young son come towards him, they would run out and probably kill him. So the father knows that. So before anybody else gets their hands on him, he runs to his son to protect him. But he also notices the consequences. The consequences of this, that as he runs to the village, if the men saw him running and then saw what he was running to, the men would punish the father instead of the son. Very often in cases like this, the Jewish men, as a man was running, would kick him, punch him, spit on him, call him, insult him. The women would spit on him, the kids could throw things at him or spit on him. All the way through. The father would run through the village to his son, taking the blame of his son. In other words, being a substitute for something he didn't have to pay for. That's what he did. And as he went through the village, 
The son saw him. At this point, he's standing there looking at his father come towards him. And he's looking and thinking, you know, dad's going to kill me now. This is the end. This is, he's, coming, he's running out, he's so angry with me, he's going to actually kill me. Until he sees the spit dropping from his dad's face, because they all spat in his face. Until he sees the marks on his back where they damaged him. Until he sees his father look a mess, realising the father didn't deserve any of this. And his son realised he's doing it for me. Amazing, isn't it? Amazing, love. And then as the son got closer, what did the father do? We read. He kissed him. In the original Greek, it means to repeatedly kiss over and over and over again. And this would have blown the son, because mercy and grace should blow you and me away, because we don't deserve it, do we? Would have blown him away. Here's a father and a son. Kiss him over and over again. Kiss him on his neck, on his cheek. And the son realised, I've done nothing except offend him. And still he's willing to take me back. Still full reconciliation. Oh, the Jewish crowd would have gone, absolutely appalling. They both deserve to die. They both deserve to die. Absolutely terrible, saying the Pharisees. We've read enough of this, Jesus. We don't want any more. Oh, there's a little bit more, you'd say. Then we find true repentance, not partial repentance. For the son drops the line, make me one of your hired servants. Why does he do that? Because he realises grace is a gift, not a reward. No matter what you do, we can't appease his wrath. We just have to accept his mercy. And everybody in heaven is a child of mercy, not of works or appeasement. He says, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And the Pharisees would have applauded the idea of the son working with the way back to, into the father's favour, but would have been disgusted and disappointed at the, the whole notion of mercy and grace. Now, ritualistic repentance came through the loss of something. True repentance came through seeing the depth of offence of the father, cause of the father. What does the father do? He takes him back in, you know, the reformer, Martin Luther, in 1721, 1521 said this, the very heart of reformation is not fear, but repentance out of love of Christ and his love for us. Why am I a Christian? Because I understood that he first loved me while I was yet a sinner. That's the issue. Nothing good enough. Nothing good enough I could do. Look what the father does. You know the story. He takes him home. What does he do? Well, first of all, he, he puts sandals on, a robe of righteousness, covers him from head to toe. No condemnation in Christ. And next, he publicly places a, a ring on his finger to symbolize to everybody he's now a trusted son. He's been adopted again. Thirdly, Brands puts a set of new shoes on his feet. You see, only, only servants had shoes. Only servants went barefooted. A son had shoes. Adopted son had shoes and honored son. And finally kills a fatted calf. And then there was a lavish celebration, verse 22. And the, the father killed a bullock. The family bull. They had the paschal lamb that she kept. That was like a dog. They kept it in the house with them. 
They also had a bull that was kept next to the house. What did he do? The father killed this bull. What did he then do? Well, in Jewish society, he had a party. Come, my son's here again. Look, I thought he was dead. But he's alive. That's why he said, you all thought he was dead. You declared him dead. I'm telling you, he's alive. He's accepted. What the father would have done for anybody to accept this invitation, he would have got some of the blood of the bull and spread it over the door, the entrance of his house. And everybody would have had to walk and step over the blood to know that the father has fully accepted the son and they accept that the son has been totally forgiven. The sacrifice has been paid. If he didn't walk over, he didn't come to the party. In other words, nobody can dare condemn him ever again. His past has been forgotten. If you come to the party, you should never hold this against him. If I've forgiven him, you must forgive him as a community. And that's how the Jews did, and they came. Done through the four hours. Finished. There's one hour. A few seconds on this. Where's the oldest son? Well, he's outside, isn't he? Why is he outside? Now, the Pharisees would have been saying, he's our man. He's conscientious. He's there with the father. The oldest son left him. The youngest son left him. He's the one that's always stayed. He's dutiful. Just like we can go to church and do our duty, but without singing with our hearts. Reading the Bible or praying, going through the ritual, dutiful, but without our hearts involved. This is the Pharisee's type of man that goes to the synagogue and yet only does it for self-advancement, not the true worship of God. He doesn't love God. And Jesus looking at the Pharisees and saying, you're right, you are the older brother. Look at the reaction of the older son. We really drew near. Why did he draw near? Because he wasn't there in the first place. He was away from his father. He was there by, by ritual, but not by, by wanting to be there. He was away. He had to ask a young son, a young child, go on, go on. Tell me what's going on. And then the father eventually came out to him, didn't he? The fact that the father had to come out was a public disgrace. And then he bitterly says, this son of yours has come back. He slept with whores. How can you take him back? And the father turned around and said, yeah, but all I have is yours. You've had the Old Testament. You've had all the prophets. You've had all the promises of God. You've seen all the sacrifices. You've seen God be merciful to you above all the nations of the world. You've had everything at this point for 4,000 years. And yet you despise these sinners coming to me? These tax collectors? These nobodies coming to me? Jesus then looks straight in the eye of the Pharisees in the last chance saloon, and he's looking at them and saying, you are the older son. What are you going to do now? Have you noticed? With the other two parables, there's an ending, isn't there? There's joy in the presence of God over sinners who repent. With this parable, there's no ending. The Lord leaves it in the air. 
But I can tell you, I can give you an ending now. Can I take you back to three months after this parable was taken and was spoken? Three months. Can I tell you what the older brother did? The older brother went round to his dad's house one night as his dad was praying in the garden. It was a lovely moonlit night. The older brother, with all his friends, a big mob of them, some of them were jealous of his dad and hated his dad anyway because he was rich, grabbed his dad, beat him and took him to the local courts. As they were walking, they were kicking and slapping him. And the father said not a word. Eventually he took him before a kangaroo court and said, this is a bad dad. He doesn't deserve to live. He's a terrible dad. And then he was publicly condemned as the court of 70 men came up, spat in the father's face and punched him in the face. And then he dragged him outside the court and then outside the local village with his friends, stripped him naked and beat his dad up with everybody else, enjoying every moment of it. Got to the point that his dad was punched to a pulp, lying on the floor. And all he could say is, son, I forgive you. You haven't got a clue what you're doing. Then the son picked up a plank of wood as his father was raising his hand up to him and hit him so hard that it killed him. 